A four-day ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is now underway, with Hamas expected to release some hostages later this morning in return for Palestinian prisoners. It's Friday, November 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, aid trucks are beginning to enter Gaza, delivering fuel and other supplies to the enclave amid the pause in fighting. Also this hour, a woman and three young children in Dublin, Ireland, are recovering from a knife attack that sparked violent protests in the city overnight. Plus, why progressive prosecutors across the U.S. are facing resistance from police departments that see them as soft on crime. And today is Native American Heritage Day. We'll hear from a Yale professor about the history of the day and what it means to observe it. In sports, the Bruins and Celtics gear up for afternoon games, mostly sunny and mid-40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. A temporary pause in fighting has taken hold in Gaza. Under the agreement, the Palestinian militant group Hamas is expected to free some hostages later this morning. In exchange, Israel will release Palestinians who've been held in Israeli jails. NPR's Aya Betrawi reports people in Gaza are using the expected four-day break in hostilities to assess the damage after more than six weeks of Israeli airstrikes in the region. NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, says he saw Palestinians returning to their homes for the first time since the October 7th attacks by Hamas on Israel. He says he saw them returning to areas in the south of Gaza that have been bombed by Israel. They took their belongings from the schools and they are like heading back to their houses. Maybe to just to see it or to have a look on it. But he says the complex deal that involves the release of Israeli hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners and a four-day pause in fighting isn't yet cause for celebration by Gaza's war-weary public. The people still a little bit skeptical about what they're going to do. We didn't witness any celebrations in the streets. Ayel Batrawi, NPR News. Nearly three dozen people have been arrested after a night of violent protests in Dublin. Authorities in Ireland say far-right demonstrators took to the streets following a knife attack outside of a school that injured three children. Ireland's Deputy Prime Minister Miro Martin is condemning the violence. This is not who we are as a people. Ireland has built a modern and inclusive society. It is something precious that we should all work to hold. We understand the need to respect other, the need to respect difference, and the need to respect the dignity of every human being. This is something that we should hold precious. Protesters attacked police officers, damaged shops, and set fire to vehicles. Police say a suspect has been taken into custody. Officials in Rockcastle County, Kentucky, say it's safe for people to return to their homes after a freight train derailment and chemical fire this week. Shepard Snyder from member station WEKU reports. The fire was put out Thursday afternoon after two cars containing molten sulfur ruptured during the derailment. Kentucky Emergency Management and railroad company CSX also say no traces of toxic gas have been detected in nearby Livingston since Thursday morning and no traces at the crash site since early Thursday afternoon. That's Shepard Snyder from member station WEKU reporting. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading higher at this hour. This is NPR. 
Today is Black Friday, traditionally the busiest shopping day of the year for retailers in the U.S. The National Retail Federation says it's expecting a record number of people to spend the holiday weekend shopping either in stores or online. Experts predict that overall, holiday shopping will grow between 3 and 4 percent this year. The Thanksgiving holiday means many households end up with refrigerators packed with leftovers. NPR's Lauren Summer reports tossing out food can be a source of the heat-trapping gases that cause climate change. With a fridge full of Tupperware and covered casserole dishes, that last bit of candied yams, if you're into that sort of thing, can be easy to forget. But when food gets thrown out and goes to the landfill, it decomposes. That produces methane, a potent greenhouse gas that heats up the planet. About a third of all food in the U.S. goes uneaten, according to the USDA. So climate experts say, don't forget to keep an eye on the leftovers. Freeze them so they don't go bad, give some to your guests, or if possible, compost your food scraps. Lauren Summer, NPR News. China says it's planning to temporarily waive visa requirements for people visiting from France Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain, and Malaysia. The Chinese Foreign Ministry says the exemptions will start on December 1st and continue through the end of November of 2024. China has been taking steps to revive its tourism sector following the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBWAR in Boston. Members of local indigenous groups are voicing their support for Palestinians amid the war between Israel and Hamas. The topic was emphasized yesterday in Plymouth during the annual Day of Mourning event. The day highlights how Native Americans were actually treated by pilgrims and also focuses on current issues. Organizers say local natives should show solidarity with Palestinians as fellow colonized people. Defenders of Israel say Jews are indigenous to the region and have as much right to live there as Native Americans have a right to sovereignty in the U.S. The Boston Public Health Commission says it plans to keep paying for private security in the area known as Mass and Cass into next year. That's the area at the intersection of Melnia Cass Boulevard and Massachusetts Avenue. The commission tells the Boston Globe it has spent $2.3 million on the detail this year alone. A private group was first hired in 2021 to provide security for a homeless shelter in the area. Massachusetts officials have launched a $14 million grant program to help child care and after-school programs renovate their facilities. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, this is a significant expansion of an existing program. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, the state allocated about $6 million a year to early education facility renovations. This year's additional $14 million comes from revenue generated by the 2022 Fair Share Amendment. Amy Kershaw, the Massachusetts Early Education and Care Commissioner, says safety and security projects are a big priority. To prepare for active threats, if necessary, of programs. And that's been really important and a priority that programs have expressed to us. Kershaw says the state also hopes to fund renovations that help programs adapt to climate change, among other things. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. It's 708. WBUR supporters include the Museum of Science, All Aboard, Trains at Science Park, now open. See model trains in a classic winter landscape or Polar Express in 4D. Visit mos.org. 
and Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. GoodNewsGarage.org. The Bruins have an early game at the Garden today. They'll skate with the Detroit Red Wings at 1 p.m. The Celtics are looking for their ninth win in a row this afternoon as they take on the Orlando Magic in Florida. Mostly sunny today with some gusty winds. Highs will be in the mid-40s. Tonight's skies stay clear and it'll still be windy. Temperatures will dip into the low 20s. Tomorrow, sunny with highs only in the upper 30s. Mostly sunny on Sunday and we'll have highs in the upper 40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. After seven weeks of war, the temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas has begun. The pause in the fighting is to allow the exchange of hostages held by Hamas and prisoners held by Israel. Now, if things go according to plan, the first exchanges should begin within hours. The war began after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Some 1,200 people were killed in that attack. Israel responded with intense air and ground assaults on Gaza. Palestinian officials say at least 12,000 people have been killed in those attacks. Joining us now to talk about the latest developments are NPR correspondents Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv, Israel, and Brian Mann in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Daniel, let's start with you. The pause in fighting has been in place for several hours now. How's it holding up? It is mostly holding, A, but it has been chaotic in Gaza. We've been hearing reports uh, from Gaza of Israeli troops firing on people who tried to go back to their homes in northern Gaza, um, to the area Israeli troops have occupied. There have been reports of several killed and wounded. Now, the Israeli army, when I've asked them about this, says that they're looking into these reports, but that an Israeli uh, army official told me firing on Palestinians at this time during the ceasefire would be a breach of the ceasefire agreement. Uh, But we do know that the army has called on Gazans now to not to return uh, to their homes in northern Gaza. So... What more do we know then about the Israelis being released and how exactly all that's going to be handled? Well, the Israeli military released images of the helicopter that they've prepared with rows of noise-canceling headphones ready to take back the freed hostages to a military reception center where they have beanbags and teddy bears for the children. Uh, They will then be taken to hospitals uh, where they'll be reunited with their families. But, you know, uh, social workers will be there to break the news to some of them that their friends, their relatives, their parents, their entire communities were killed in the Hamas attacks. This is Sarit Sarfati from Israel's welfare ministry. She spoke to reporters. We will have to break the news to them very soon. This is something that cannot be delayed because we don't want them to find out the bad and the sad news by rumors. And Hamas is saying it will release a total of some about 50 women and minors, children, over the next four days. Brian Mann, you're in the uh, West Bank city of Ramallah. What are you hearing about the Palestinians due to be released? So what we expect today is that 39 Palestinians are going to be freed on this first day of the pause. Uh, Israel says that process is already underway with uh, these prisoners being gathered at a detention center for the transfer. They're all going to be young under the age of 18. Uh, We believe eight will be going to Jerusalem, seven young people coming here to Ramallah where I am. No prisoners, interestingly, released who are going to go back to Gaza. 
Uh, I was in the Kalendia refugee camp here this morning where two families believe their daughters will be coming home. They're preparing a celebration. Uh, again, these are mostly young people detained for throwing stones or Molotov cocktails or other actions uh, that Israel views as supporting terrorism. No high-level militia leaders are being released as part of this transfer. How are Palestinians in the West Bank reacting to this? Well, it's complicated. There's so much anger and resentment here that's built up over decades of Israel's occupation. I was at a protest following Friday prayer at the mosque here, uh, where many people voice support for Hamas. They say Hamas's attack on October 7th wasn't the start of all this violence, but part of a longer history. Uh, there's also fear that once this four-day truce ends, things could get even more ugly in Gaza. I spoke with Raj Hade, who teaches physics at a school here in Ramallah. I, I feel... Uh good for the people to have a rest from the bombardment, but this is not the solution. This massacre has to be stopped, not to give the people four days of rest. It's a massacre. They are slaughtering children, and this has to be stopped. And Hade says he wants other Arab and Muslim countries to defend Gaza from Israel's military if the fighting resumes as expected next week. Daniel, what is the level of hope, would you say, that uh, this pause in fighting, the pause might become permanent? Well, just as Brian Mann just said, I mean, if, uh, the, Israel has promised that the war uh, will continue after several days. Uh, these are first four days of pause, but Israel has in, given an incentive to Hamas uh, to try to release even more hostages and promised Israel promised to release even more Palestinian prisoners from jail. Today, uh, 13 Israeli women and children are expected to be released. Uh, Israelis are passing out flowers. It's a moment of hope for Israelis, but uh, for Palestinians in Gaza, they're saying they just feel uh, it's a depressing moment. They don't see that the situation will get better for them. That is Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv and Brian Mann in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Daniel, Brian, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Dave. Across the country, many progressive prosecutors have been labeled soft on crime for criminal justice reforms, such as eliminating cash bail and not prosecuting shoplifters. Some have been removed from office. And in St. Louis, the resistance is so fierce that one police officer is refusing to do one of the most important parts of his job. NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer collaborated with ProPublica to examine how this situation mirrors a nationwide trend. So, Sasha, tell us about this man. So this is a St. Louis homicide detective named Roger Murphy. He is refusing to testify in murder cases in which he was the lead investigator. So far, he's declined to take the stand in at least nine cases, and Murphy thinks his absence hurt prosecutors' chances of getting convictions. And A, there's another trial coming up soon, and Murphy won't testify in that one either. Wow. Why, why won't he testify? Because the St. Louis Prosecutor's Office put Murphy on a list of cops with credibility problems. Murphy landed on it, he believes unfairly, because of some Facebook posts interpreted as being racist. But even though Murphy was on that list, the prosecutor's office still asked him to testify in cases. Murphy says it's hypocritical to question his integrity, yet trust him to take the stand. And he says if he does testify, defense lawyers might attack him about why he's on the list. So he's not doing it. All right, so now I'm going to guess that there is a progressive prosecutor at the center of the story. Yes, there is. It's a woman named Kim Gardner. She was the top prosecutor in St. Louis for nearly seven years. She vowed to reduce mass incarceration, hold police accountable, but she clashed with police. They say she failed to prosecute legitimate cases. And 
and Detective Murphy strongly opposes her policies. I don't believe in the progressive system at all, at all. The public has seen me as the enemy and has seen our profession as the enemy. But we didn't break the system. We kept arresting people and she kept letting them out, you know, refusing cases, refusing good cases. And a gardener resigned this spring after huge pushback and a lot of dysfunction in her office. And Murphy is now retired, but he's still refusing to testify in ongoing cases. Now, as we mentioned earlier, I mean, many progressive prosecutors around the country have also faced opposition recently. Right. Philadelphia, Baltimore, San Francisco, Boston, I think L.A., where you are. They all have or had progressive prosecutors who were hit with huge resistance and some were forced out or resigned. In Chicago, the top prosecutor is Kim Fox, and she's also experienced this, although she hasn't had a Roger Murphy-like situation. A detective deliberately tanking a case. That is horrifying to hear, quite honestly. But I have been faced with, Kim Gardner has been faced with, and others have been faced with, an unprecedented level of hate and vitriol from those who were previously partners with others who did this work. Kim Fox is referring there to police departments and police unions, which she says were rooting for her to fail from the get-go. Before I put my hand on the Bible to take the oath to take this job, there was a widely known police blog going around naming me Crimesha, C-R-I-M-E-S-H-A, which is a play on the word crime and what I believe to be a racist insinuation about me being black with the name Isha. Spelling my name with three X's to insinuate the sexualization of who I am. Putting out my address and saying perhaps if people came to my house and assaulted my daughters, then my view on crime would be different. So she thinks police weren't going to accept her no matter how much she tried to work with them. All right, now, police departments and police unions, what are their main complaints about progressive prosecutors? Basically, they view them as enemies of old-fashioned law enforcement. Many police say they're too liberal and they're making cities less safe. I want to play you some police body camera tape from the Burlington, Vermont area, where there's a progressive prosecutor. The officer you're going to hear is speaking to a young couple and saying he can't do much about suspected drug dealers in their neighborhood because of the local prosecutor named Sarah George. Unfortunately, this is kind of the product of Sarah George's super progressive soft on crime approach where we arrest the same people daily and they get out the same day. He went on to encourage them to vote for her opponent in an upcoming election. So some progressive prosecutors feel that some police are actively undermining them in the community. Sasha, what do we know about crime rates in places that have progressive prosecutors? Some studies have found that does not cause an increase, but criminologists will be debating for years how much crime rates were affected by COVID versus the economy versus progressive policies. Now, some police believe criminals are emboldened by progressive prosecutors because they think there will be no consequences for illegal behavior. But the counter argument is that desperate or hardened people aren't thinking in advance about whether the local prosecutor is tough on crime or progressive. Here's the president of the St. Louis NAACP, a man named Adolphus Pruitt. A lot of folks who are committing crimes today are not saying, hey, we got this liberal prosecutor in office. Let's run out here and commit some crimes. It is not happening that way. You have people who are not afraid to go to jail. It's as simple as that. They're at a point in their lives where, hell, my life ain't worth crap anyway, some of them feel. And then you trying to tell me that jail is worse? <laughs> A lot of them don't feel that way. 
So both prosecutors and police have that to contend with, too. All right. That's NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer. Sasha, thanks for bringing this to us. You're welcome. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Friday with 90.9 WBUR. It's Native American Heritage Day. We'll learn about its history coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition. In his proclamation, proclamation, President Biden said it's important to honor Native people's resilience despite centuries of violence and oppression. It's 721. In times of crises, journalism plays a vital role. I'm Lisa Mullins. At WBUR and NPR, our job is to ferret out the facts and report the fullest version of the truth possible, challenge assumptions, hold officials to account, bear witness, and tell the stories of those with the most at stake. We can't do our job without your help. Make your year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. Mostly sunny today. We'll have a high in the mid-40s. It'll also be windy. Low 20s tonight under mostly clear skies. Sunny tomorrow. Highs will only be in the upper 30s. A few clouds move in on Sunday, and it'll warm up a bit. We'll have highs in the upper 40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases, in a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. Adam, Jack, and Ryan Met are the brothers behind the pop band AJR. Their father died as they were finalizing their fifth studio album, The Maybe Man, out this month. You got older because you're good at life. I'm all 17 at 35 Now I don't know if there's anything else The DJ is crying for help My colleague Steve Inski spoke with the group about the pensive mood of this album as the brothers plan a 43-city tour across North America starting April 2nd in Norfolk, Virginia. I've heard a lot of your music voluntarily because I like it. I've heard a lot of music involuntarily because it is on the hot music radio station that my kids listen to. So it's got a broad audience, I think. And in thinking about what you do, I ended up thinking about a sentence. You tell me if I've got it right or got it wrong. You have been producing joyous, expansive, celebratory music about people who feel really bad about themselves. (laughs) Wow. This is Ryan. I think that describes it well. Yeah, I think we are not depressing people, but we're also kind of realistic people. We know how screwed up life can be sometimes. 
And I think we always try to find a balance of, okay, if we're going to talk about something really deep, let's add a little juxtaposition in there. Let's have a more upbeat clap thing or a weird production quirky element just to remind people that, you know, life is sometimes okay. You've got a song here called Yes, I'm a Mess. Yes, I'm a mess with an S on my chest, got stress filling up my head. Yes, I'm a mess with an S on my chest which uh, is a great Sesame Street sounding thing, but also something else is going on there. What's happening there? This is Jack, and uh, that song is about when things get awfully stressful and uh, difficult in life, I feel like everyone kind of has this brief fantasy of what if I was able to kind of start over? What if I was able to throw away my life, move to a new city, change my name, and basically take it all from the top? Yes, I'm a mess with an S on my chest is kind of this way to like show, you know, I'm, I'm truly a mess underneath, but I'm kind of making it look like I'm this hero on top. So that's kind of how we started off the course. And that's kind of the entire feel of the album. I can't help but note this album seems to have been composed in a time of loss for you, a time of tragedy. What was happening? Right as we were starting to write the album, our father got really sick. I gotta leave for Paris now. My band goes on its end. And my dad can't get out of bed. Then it turns out that there was uh, an issue with his lung, which turned into uh, cancer. And basically the entire time we were writing the album, our father was getting sicker and sicker. And things got so bad so quickly that it became a lot more personal and emotional than we had planned on. And it was this sort of tough thing which made us kind of grow like 30 years in, in, in the span of eight months, which was sort of needing to write this album. We had a due date for it and needing to put everything we had into it. But at the same time, being there for our father and having to rush back, we kind of inadvertently wrote our most personal and most emotional album. God is really real when you really, really need him. Karma just appears when you suddenly The song God is Really Real includes that line, my dad can't get out of bed. That's a devastating line to hear. It was made through massive amount of tears and anxiety and fear, an amount that we never felt again, honestly. Even when he passed, it was the saddest thing any of us had ever had to go through. But that fear in the moment of what's going to happen, imagining the worst, that never came up again. I'm listening to you put names to your different emotions, which is impressive because in the song itself, describing that moment, you write, we can't face our feelings, so we're making lots of jokes, which is absolutely what I would have been doing. (laughs) Yeah, that's something that you don't really know until you go through a grief in your family. This is Ryan, is that there's like a weird fun element to it. It's like all the barriers that made your dad your dad. And we can't talk about this thing because it's too emotional or whatever. That goes away. You're like taking care of him like he's a baby. And you're like making jokes the whole time. Like that that was the year. It was like really sad, but it was also really funny. And we got to see a side of him that we never saw before. Is there any risk that you guys might accidentally become more happy or secure and mess up your music? <laughs> um, Hopefully not. <laughs> I hope not. This is right. That was a big worry while we were making this album. Because I think, <laughs> no, honestly, well, the, uh, kind of the opposite. Because our, our past albums always have big kind of bangers with hip hop beats on them. Sure. And we were kind of worried that fans weren't going to like this one as much. And we put it out. And a lot of fans are telling us this is their favorite album that we've ever made. 
So to answer your question, that worries me a little bit. I hope that we never have as emotionally turbulent a year as we had this past year. So I hope the rest of our albums are maybe a little bit lighter. But I think the lesson we learned is just like write what we're doing right now and fans will connect to it. So you're getting ready for the stadiums and and everything else. It's crazy, yeah. This has been like the number one goal of this band is to play arenas. Like we started off street performing. Yeah. And that was just our goal. It was like, if we can be an arena band, we'll know we've made it. Did you literally, when you were like on street corners, say to yourselves, someday we'll be doing this in an arena? This is Adam. The process of growing as a band is something that I think that we all fell in love with because we didn't skip any steps. We played the 200-person room and then the 500-person, then 1,000, then 10,000, and now we're in arenas, and we were able to appreciate every single step along the way. And the same mm. thing goes for the music. We've had a bunch of songs that have gotten popular in different ways, and that keeps opening us up to different audiences. It's influencing the music you're writing, is what you're saying. You're growing as musicians because of the way you've had to grow. Yeah, I think so. Well, Adam, Jack, and Ryan, thanks very much for taking the time. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, how people in the U.K. are coping with the rising cost of typically cheap comfort foods like fish and chips. It's 7.30. There's nothing like live radio with the WBUR app. You can listen live on the road, on a walk, and in the kitchen. Get the free WBUR app today. WBUR supporters include the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with Uni Restaurant and Sashimi Bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Hamas is scheduled to release 13 hostages this morning, all women and children, as part of an agreement with Israel. The BBC's Anna Foster says their release is part of a four-day pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas, which began hours ago. This is a deal which has four distinct parts. One is the release of 50 hostages over the course of four days. It also involves the release of Palestinian prisoners who are being held in Israeli jails. And also tied into that is an increase in humanitarian aid that is due to pass through the Rafah crossing from Egypt into Gaza for the next four days. The 50 hostages by, uh, taken by Hamas during this pause were among more than 200 taken by the militants when they attacked southern Israel on October 7th. Authorities in Kentucky say it's now safe for people living in and around Livingston to return to the area. Residents were evacuated on Wednesday after a CSX freight train derailed, sparking a chemical spill and fire. Throughout this entire event, um, the safety of the public has been our number one concern. That's Dustin Heiser with the state's Department of Emergency Management. That fire has since been extinguished and officials say monitoring shows the air is safe to breathe there. This is NPR News. 
This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. There's an increase in need at Pine Street Inn in Boston. Officials with the homeless shelter say requests for meals and overnight services are up about 30 percent in the past year. That comes as the state's emergency shelter system hit its self-imposed cap. Pine Street officials tell the Boston Herald the need is not just coming from migrants. They say many senior citizens are asking for help because of the tight rental market. If you're worried about paying your utility bills this winter, you should know that there's help available. Low-income residents in Massachusetts may be eligible for fuel assistance from the state or discounted bills from utilities. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has more. The Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, better known as LIHEAP or fuel assistance, is available to people who make up to 60 percent of the state's median income level, or about $81,000 for a family of four. The federally funded program can reduce residents' heating bills by hundreds of dollars every winter. Melissa Lavinson is a spokeswoman for National Grid. She says customers on the discount rate can reduce their gas and electric bills by at least 25 percent every month. And that's a significant savings for our customers, and so we really encourage them to to reach out and to find out more about it. Eversource and Unitil customers can also get these discounted rates. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Killington Ski Resort in Vermont hosts the Women's Ski World Cup beginning today. It's the seventh year the resort is hosting the elite competition. Crystal Killary is the brand marketing manager at Killington. She says the race kicks off all the other U.S. World Cup races in the States. It brings ski racing back to New England. So that's why we started doing it. We have such a ski racing culture in the Northeast, and the crowd really turns out for this event. Killary says up to 40,000 spectators are expected to come out to watch the races. It's 7:34. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com/go. The Bruins will be looking for a win against the Detroit Red Wings when they hit the ice at the Garden this afternoon. And the Celtics will try to make it nine straight wins when they take on the Magic in Orlando today. Highs in the mid-40s today under mostly sunny skies. It'll also be windy. Tonight, low 20s and mostly clear skies. Tomorrow, sunny with highs only in the upper 30s. Sunday, partly cloudy with highs back in the upper 40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films, presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, now playing exclusively in theaters. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. The day after Thanksgiving was officially named Native American Heritage Day in 2008 to honor and remember the culture and contributions of the indigenous people of America. For many, it's also a time to remember the tragedies within that rich history and recognize the struggles that Native communities face today. Ned Blackhawk is a professor of history and American studies at Yale and a member of the Tomok tribe of the Western Shoshone Indians of Nevada. My co-host Steve Inskeeve spoke with him about the opportunities of Native American Heritage Day and where such recognitions fall short. It's an evolving 
institutionalized commitment made by many uh, entities, government and non. And it also follows what many Native Americans feel to be a national day of mourning around the Thanksgiving holiday, which is not uh, universally shared, but is often particularly um, particularly animates uh, Northeastern indigenous nations who feel their their communities and histories have never been fully recognized or incorporated. I think we understand why some people would see this as a day of mourning, because it's a moment to mark uh, a loss of sovereignty, a loss of land, and any number of other tragedies and brutalities over the centuries. But you have delved into that same history, and while acknowledging the awfulness of it, you seem to take a different angle or make a different argument about the roles of Native peoples and Native nations in American history. What are you trying to say? Well, in my new book, The Rediscovery of America, I'm trying to highlight the centrality of indigenous peoples broadly to the making of what we call American history. And so while there is undeniable loss, dispossession, cultural genocide even, there's still incredible forms of activism and advocacy and recent movements towards self-determination that make our contemporary era one worth uh, recognizing in a different register. We're coming up on the 100th anniversary of an event that can be described as an effort to fully integrate Indians into the body politic, the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924. What was it and how significant was it? Uh, The Indian Citizenship Act of 1924 is part of a larger effort of early 20th century Native American activists and allies to put forward a final kind of recognition of indigenous peoples as citizens of the United States. It's less kind of celebrated than other what we might think of as civil rights achievements in American history, in part because citizenry is not always the kind of primary form of indigenous advocacy or the outcome that many indigenous activists have aspired to. Many at the time were actually a little ambivalent about it because it was so uh, rooted in a larger discourse of property ownership and assimilative practices of Christianity, Christian adoption, English language usage, and a kind of distancing away from tribal communities themselves. And this, as you know, had been part of the federal government's civilization program since the 1870s, removing children from boarding schools, alienating reservation lands. So it's not something that is as kind of um, uh, celebratory as other subjects. Would you say that Native nations are, on the whole, gaining a larger role in American society in the last few generations? I would say that the last few generations have witnessed an incredible rise in the sovereign authority of Native nations in ways that we haven't seen in contemporary American history. It's difficult celebrating these subjects in a kind of simplified way, but if we can understand the rising uh, tide of indigenous sovereignty that has made Native nations self-governing, economically viable, even like attractive as tourist destinations, uh, we can envision a kind of more inclusive and heterogeneous vision of America in which race relations are not mired in a kind of myopic black-white binary. I think you're also telling me that I should think of Native Americans not solely as victims when I think about their role in history, but as people with agency who fought back and who added something to the culture here. Correct. And being a member of a Native American nation is a form of citizenry that many Americans have a hard time understanding. I am and many Native peoples are members of both their tribal communities and the federal or national community. And that distinctiveness is something we should not be scared of, but should embrace and try to learn and celebrate, particularly on Native American Heritage Day. That was my colleague Steve Inskeep speaking with Ned Blackhawk, a professor of history and American studies at Yale. 
Today is Black Friday, and many Americans are out looking for a good deal. As always, it's wise to keep an eye out for scams, but are companies doing enough to protect you from being tricked? Here's NPR's Jenna McLaughlin. Cybercriminals love the holiday season. The internet is flooded with ads clamoring for shoppers' attention, and that makes it easier to slip in a scam. At this point, you probably know to watch out for phishing emails. But it might surprise you to know that there's a tool that's been around a long time that could help solve this problem. It's called DMARC, or the Domain Message Authentication Reporting and Conformance Protocol. It's actually pretty simple. It basically helps prove the sender is who they say they are. DMARC seeks to bring trust and confidence to the visible from address of an email so that when you receive an email from an address at wellsfargo.com or bestbuy.com, you can say with absolute certainty, it definitely came from them. Robert Holmes is with the cybersecurity firm Proofpoint. According to his new research, more than half of the top 50 online retailers in the United States, they're not fully compliant with DMARC. Experts are predicting record-breaking holiday shopping this year. That makes for a lot of potential for fraud. Holmes helps explain why with a timely analogy. The way to look at this is Gmail on Black Friday. It's like kind of JFK Airport over Thanksgiving. So imagine you're at JFK Airport on one of these days with lots of people coming and going. And imagine a world where that airport didn't check IDs. Lots of nefarious activity would happen. But there's good news. Early next year, Google and Yahoo will be requiring companies to use DMARC authentication. Otherwise, their messages will be more likely to get flagged as spam or blocked entirely. Holmes suggests it's important that companies take on a big part of the burden of securing their customers, rather than train everyone to be cybersecurity experts just to buy Christmas gifts. So the thing about good security, it should be invisible to Joe Public. Even so, that might not be the end of consumer problems. I think the consequences of getting this wrong are severe. Legitimate email gets blocked. That's because big companies have a big supply chain. They give third parties permission to send emails on their behalf. You know those automated messages you get when your flight time changes or a payment is due? Those services need to be secured too, or they might get blocked. If retailers don't take those kinds of things into consideration, you might miss a scam, but you could also miss a flight. Jen McLaughlin, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, we'll look at the role Qatar played in the deal that brought about a four-day pause in fighting in Gaza and how that could impact future negotiations. Mostly sunny, windy, and mid-40s today. Temperatures fall to the low 20s tonight, and skies stay mostly clear. It'll only be in the upper 30s tomorrow, but it'll be sunny. A few clouds move in on Sunday. Temperatures will warm up back to the upper 40s. It's 42 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, showcasing the all-new 2024 Subaru Outback, available now. 
CitysideSubaru.com, and Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. A New England treat has made its way to grocery store shelves in Canada for the first time. WBUR's Solon Kelleher reports the expansion is part of a new international strategy from a Worcester-based bakery. Last month, Worcester-based Table Talk Pies opened a new production facility in Quebec, the first plant in its 99-year history located outside of Worcester County. Part of the expansion means catering to new taste buds. Sugar pies are one of the most popular pies up there in Quebec. Harry Kokinas is executive chairman of Table Talk Pies and the grandson of one of the company's co-founders. What's in the sugar pies, of course, sugar but also cream, and it's a a really nice blend of taste. The sugar pies are only available in Canada for now. The company's most popular flavor in New England remains apple, followed by blueberry at a close second. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. The 8th Annual Sowa Winter Festival gets underway at 10 this morning in Boston's South End. Alexis Mello is the community events manager for Sowa. She says visitors will find everything from specialty foods to arts and crafts from 120 local vendors. The fun really continues once you get to shop from some of the best small businesses in the area. Then you have to venture to the second floor. We have live entertainment, festive music, and more food. This year we have food at the mezzanine, and so I highly encourage everyone to go there. The indoor market will be open for 15 shopping days every Thursday to Sunday for the next four weeks. It's 7.45. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. Who doesn't have a favorite comfort food? Maybe yours is chicken soup, mac and cheese, or arroz con leche. Comfort foods are often cheap dishes with humble origins, but what happens when our staple foods become luxuries? Our colleagues over at The Indicator from Planet Money, Patty Hirsch and Adrian Ma, take a look at fish and chips in the UK. By any measure, fish and chips are an integral part of the British culinary landscape. 22% of Brits visit a fish and chip shop every week. And Brits spend roughly $1.5 billion on fish and chips every year. And there are more than 10,000 fish and chip shops in the UK. The vast majority are independently owned. And most are these takeout joints where you just kind of take your meal out wrapped up in paper. And they often have these cute names like the Friar Tuck or the Oh My God. (laughs) Or in the case of the one around the corner from my mum's house in Bournemouth, Chips Ahoy. Perry Godfrey's the owner. The shop's been a fish and chip shop for nearly 70 years now. When I took it over, it was very run down. And we built it up in the last 22 years, and thankfully we're very successful. And um, we keep going from day to day and keep improving, hopefully. Hopefully. Perry says the fish and chip business is coming under some intense pressure right now. Economy at the moment, the prices are ranked up. Oil, just to open up per day, it cost me £50 just in oil. Fish, fish has doubled in the last over the last five, six years. Um, energy, of course, we know all about energy. Packaging's another uh, cost. 
Yeah, and there are a lot of factors to point a finger at here. There's the war in Ukraine, which drove up the cost of vegetable oil and also the fuel to heat that oil. And the UK government has also raised interest rates, which has translated into higher rents and more expensive loans. In some shops, the price on the menu board has risen to eye-popping levels, even as much as 20 bucks a head. And that's for a meal that's traditionally been a staple of the British diet eaten by people on low incomes. If you go back 25, 30 years, you know, fish and chips were very, very cheap. Yeah, this is Duncan Weldon. He's the Britain economics writer at The Economist newspaper. If you compare the cost of fish and chips to something like the cheapest meals at a branch of McDonald's, they were very, very comparable in price 20 years ago. Whereas now you're saying you're spending two and a half, three times as much on buying your lunch at a fish and chip shop than compared to a McDonald's. You know, that takes it from being a staple to being essentially a luxury item. And this story of a staple becoming a luxury is not a new one. It happened to oysters in New York in the 1800s, to sushi in Japan, to caviar, brisket, lobster. <laughs> you just named it like all the delicious foods. What's going on here? I'm just trying to make the point here that economics often drives long-term changes in diet and taste. And that right now the UK is going through a big change with this staple, fish and chips. Now, before people go out and start like panic buying fried fish and chips, <laughs> this does not mean that the fish and chip shops are going to disappear like overnight altogether. No, no. The dish is still hugely popular in the UK. And the restaurants are kind of part of the fabric of the community in a way that fast food chain joints are absolutely not. In Bournemouth, Perry Godfrey says the customers who visit his fish and chip shop certainly see things that way. Adrian Ma, Patty Hirsch, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. This is NPR News. Here with WBUR on a Friday, coming up at 8.20 on Morning Edition, some unconventional places to look today for good Black Friday deals. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. I'm Robin Young. Some book clubs run from James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. It's a good thing you took the silverware away from me so I don't have anything to stab my eyeballs with. But Jerry Fialka's read it over 28 years. It's a party. It's a hootenanny. It's choir. It's a clarion call where you connect with other human beings. Live Finnegan's Wake. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. A four-day ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is now underway, with Hamas expected to release some hostages later this morning in return for Palestinian prisoners. Officials in Kentucky say people can return home following a train derailment that caused a toxic spill near the town of Livingston. And Paralympic sprinter Oscar Pistorius will be released from prison on parole 10 years after killing his girlfriend. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Mostly clear skies today and windy. It'll be in the mid-40s. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 20s and skies stay mostly clear. A cold day tomorrow, only in the upper 30s, but it'll be sunny. Back to the upper 40s on Sunday and mostly sunny. It's 42 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Trains, planes, automobiles. According to AAA, more than 55 million Americans are expected to be on the move at some point during this holiday season. And let's face it, holiday travel is stressful. The cost, the crowds, the weather delays, and then you add kids into the mix. If you've ever done it, then you know it can amp up the stress factor exponentially. So we thought we would try to help by answering your questions about traveling with kids. And for this, we've called two pediatricians who are also parents who have been through it themselves. Dr. Candace Jones is a pediatrician from Orlando, Florida. Welcome. Thanks for having me this morning. Good morning. Good morning. And Dr. Jamie Friedman is a pediatrician from San Diego, California. Welcome to you as well. Thank you so much and good morning. Good morning. So I'm going to start with you, Dr. Friedman. Do you have any worries when you travel with your kids? And if so, what are they or maybe what's the biggest one? Well, my kids are grown now, but when they were younger, definitely the biggest worry was how am I going to occupy them keep them busy, keep them interested, entertained, so we don't experience the meltdowns that I think everybody dreads when they travel with their children. Dr. Jones, what about you? What is your biggest worry when you travel with your children? We're right in the thick of everything you mentioned in your introduction. I have a 15-year-old and a 6-year-old, and my worries are always all the baggage, getting through security, standing in the lines. So I understand the pressure that parents are under because I will be right with them. So let's hear some questions from listeners. And this is from Erica Voch, and she's in Sacramento, California. What's the real risk of kids contracting COVID on a flight? We haven't traveled since before the pandemic began and would love to, but we're concerned with the risk of COVID since our kids are still so young. They're only two years old and five months old. The two-year-old is vaccinated. The five-month-old is still too young to be vaccinated. Dr. Freeman, thoughts? Well, I think it's a really good question, and I'm glad she brought up the idea of vaccinating because for kids who can't wear a mask, that's really your number one way to reduce the risk of getting COVID. The problem with air travel is when you're in the air, it's good. There's a lot of air turnover, which can really help keep particles out of the air. But it's those times when you're sitting there during boarding and then also deplaning when you arrive at the airport. I think the best thing to do is do your research on what are the rates where you are, where you're going, um, bring some hand sanitizer with you. And uh, if the two-year-old can wear a mask, you know, you can actually try that as well. Dr. Jones, anything you want to add? I totally agree with that. I think anywhere you can create some space for yourself in lines at the airport and take advantage of that family boarding so you have a little more space and you're not all crowded up, creating those barriers are very effective and masking, absolutely. All right, Dr. Jones, let's go to you first on this one. This one is from Amy Leo, who is in Tacoma Park, Maryland. How can I ensure in the midst of disrupted routines and new environments that we all get the best sleep possible while traveling? And you can hear that Amy is in the thick of it. You can hear that baby in the background. She knows what she's talking about. What do you say, Dr. Jones? We all have been there as parents. I think this is where we 
try to manage our expectations when you're traveling, especially if it's international or a different time zone, and give yourself some grace and try to have a little patience for your kids because they will get off. And as soon as possible, when you get to where you're going, just kind of reestablishing your bedtime or having those things that make them feel comfortable, their lovies, their passies, their favorite treats, anything that can recreate what they're used to is usually very helpful for getting them back on track. But what I think I hear you saying is don't fly across the country or to Europe or, you know, around the world for a wedding and then expect to go to that wedding the next day and have everybody be happy. That's correct. Pre-planning is the key and travel maybe a couple of days before so that you can get acclimated. I know we do that when we travel. We also got a lot of questions about how to eat on the road with kids. Are there some snacks or meals or something that people could bring along for their kids to help them? And and or is there anything parents should not pack? Dr. Jones, you have thoughts about this? You know, I often recommend to parents, this is the time where to keep the peace, <laughs> where maybe some of all of our pediatrician healthy rules can be, you know, put on pause. But things like um, if you want to try to go healthy, healthy, non-perishable foods like packaged bars, nut butters and crackers, making a trail mix, even some fresh fruit or dried fruits are fine and they're easily packable. They'll get through security. But just their favorites is really key. So I want to go to this next question because I think this is something that is important for people to hear, even if they have kids who have an issue or disability or they don't. And I'll just play that and then we'll talk about it. My name is Kimberly Todd, and I'm from Sacramento, California. We travel often internationally as a family with our autistic daughter. Traveling with her as a young child was very stressful. Can you share information on how to obtain accommodations for a flight or what airport services may be available to traveling families that need additional support? Dr. Friedman, do you want to start? What are your thoughts about this? I think it does make sense to call ahead and say, hey, or at least call the airline and say, hey, can we get pre-boarding. So if you can get pre-boarding and be out of the crowd and on the plane and get settled, that can be helpful. I do think it's really important, you know, as the sort of the theme of this whole session is having sameness and familiarity. So whatever your child with special needs is used to, if there is, you know, something, you know, manipulatives in their hands that they like to have, things that they, if they're very oral, things that they can put in their mouth. Um, if they're bothered by noise and they will wear, you know, noise canceling headphones. I know that can be very helpful or have music. And you can make sort of like a lanyard with a tag or a tag on the shirt or a t-shirt or something that says, you know, I have autism or please be patient with me. I see that a lot. And I think that's really helpful because some people just don't understand a lot of disabilities aren't obvious when you're looking at somebody. Dr. Jones, any thoughts about this? I would also talk to the flight crew so that they're aware of your child. I think they are often helpful and can work with families for whatever special things they need. And if they're aware, if there's a problem, they can step in and be ready to handle the situation. You know, I've said in the future, tap a person on the back and say, I'm sorry, I have this toddler. She may be kicking the seat, you know, or something like that. So talk to people around you and let them know. And I think people will come together and help make it as easy as possible. That is Dr. Candace Jones from Orlando, Florida, and Dr. Jamie Friedman from San Diego, California. They are both board-certified pediatricians offering their advice for how to travel with kids. Thank you both so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much for having me. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. I'm executive editor for news Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A four-day ceasefire in Gaza has begun, setting the stage for Hamas to release hostages and Israel to release Palestinian prisoners. It's Friday, November 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, how the Israel-Hamas war has complicated Israel's relations with some Arab countries that had begun to normalize relations with the Jewish state. Also this hour, there are concerns about the integrity of a police investigation into the sudden death of a pop star in Nigeria. Plus, tips on unexpected places to find Black Friday deals. And WBUR's own arts and culture fellow, Solon Kelleher, has recommendations for repurposing Thanksgiving leftovers from soup to pie to waffles made of stuffing. Mostly sunny in mid-40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Israeli military, hospitals, and social workers are preparing to receive a group of hostages expected to be released by Hamas in Gaza today. Qatar says 13 Israeli hostages will be released. In exchange, Israel will release Palestinian prisoners. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. The Israeli military released images of the helicopter with two rows of noise-canceling headphones ready to take the freed Israeli hostages to a military reception center. Then they'll be taken to hospitals where they'll be reunited with their families. Social workers will be on hand to break the news that some of their friends and relatives were killed in the Hamas attacks October 7th. Sarit Sarfati from Israel's Welfare Ministry spoke to reporters. We will have to break the news to them very soon. This is something that cannot be delayed because we don't want them to find out the bad and the sad news by rumors. Hamas says it will release a total of some 50 women and children over the next four days, and Israel will release 150 Palestinian prisoners and detainees, women and minors. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. A negotiated temporary pause in fighting is allowing people in Gaza to begin assessing the damage after more than six weeks of Israeli airstrikes in the region. NPR's Anas Baba reports that Palestinians are returning to their homes for the first time since Hamas attacked southern Israel on October 7th. The people that lived in the southern easterns, their houses, because it's very close to the borders, they took their belongings from the schools, and they are like heading back to their houses, maybe to, to, to just to see it or to have a look on it. NPR's Anas Baba reporting from Gaza. Dozens of people were arrested after a night of violent protests in the Irish capital of Dublin. The Lamarck's reports far-right demonstrators took to the streets to protest a knife attack outside of a school that left several people wounded, including three children. The knife attack in the city centre had several people wounded, three of them young children. But the rioting that followed was severe and unexpected, Ireland's police chief has said, with more than a dozen stores damaged. Three buses were burned and several police vehicles destroyed in what the country's top police officer called, quote, huge destruction from a riotous mob that was driven by, quote, far-right ideology. 
The country's deputy prime minister praised emergency workers but called the country's modern and inclusive society, quote, something precious that should be protected. Police say they prepared for more violence but would conduct a fundamental review of their tactics in light of this event they did not anticipate. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks. Stocks across Asia traded mostly lower today. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading higher. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. In the midst of the war between Israel and Hamas, the 54th annual Day of Mourning in Plymouth turned its attention to the Middle East yesterday. WBUR Simone Rios reports. The Day of Mourning has usually focused on issues affecting Native Americans. But with the Israeli invasion of Gaza, organizer Matoi Monroe said it was important for local natives to show solidarity with Palestinians. When I look at Gaza, I see two reflections of all the indigenous people killed in the wave after wave of massacres. People around the world whose only crime has been to exist and resist settler colonialism. One speaker told the crowd Palestinians should resist Israel by any means necessary, and Israel has no right to defend itself. Defenders of Israel say Jews are indigenous to the region and have as much right to live there as Native Americans have a right to sovereignty in the U.S. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. State education officials are making a plan to combat chronic student absences. Those absences remain high following unprecedented spikes during the pandemic. A student is considered chronically absent if they miss at least 10 percent of school days. Officials tell the Boston Herald they want to make the schools more accountable for the absences. They also want to encourage families to get their kids to school by offering grant assistance. The Chelmsford Police Department is hoping to curb drunk driving over the holidays by offering people free rides and tows home. The Tow Drunk to Drive program began this week and will run until New Year's Day. The service is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's available from anywhere in Chelmsford to anywhere in the Merrimack Valley. The Massachusetts Horticultural Society kicks off its annual Festival of Trees this morning. Visitors will get to see the garden in Wellesley decorated with lights. There will also be 70 fully decorated Christmas trees on display. James Hearsom is the executive director of the society. He says one of the goals of the event is to remind people of the importance of nature in their lives. One of the great things about this event is the way that by lighting up all the trees in the winter, you can really see something of their structure and the difference in the variety of trees. So it is very much garden focused in that sense. The festival runs through the end of December. It's 8.06. The Celtics and Bruins both play tonight following a night off for Thanksgiving. First, the Bruins take on the Detroit Red Wings at TD Garden. That's at 1 this afternoon. Then at 2.30, the Celtics look to extend their winning streak to nine games. The team is in Florida to take on the Orlando Magic. Mostly sunny today with some gusty winds. Highs will be in the mid-40s. Tonight's skies stay clear and it'll be windy. Temperatures will dip into the low 20s. Tomorrow, sunny with highs only in the upper 30s. Mostly sunny on Sunday and we'll have highs in the upper 40s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. A four-day pause in the conflict between Israel and Hamas appears to be underway. It's part of a deal that will allow for the release of at least 50 hostages seized by Hamas during last month's attack on Israel. Israel, in return, will release 150 Palestinian women and children from Israeli jails. The deal was brokered by Qatar with support from the United States and Egypt and has been described as a major diplomatic breakthrough. But what will its lasting impact be? For more, we're joined this morning by Jonathan Panikoff. He's a former U.S. intelligence officer and director of the Scowcroft Middle East Security Initiative at the Atlantic Council's Middle East Program. Jonathan, if this pause holds, we'll expect to see the first hostages released later this morning and then additional releases over the course of the next uh, four days. Why is this staggered approach the way to go? Good morning. The reason for the staggered approach is that it will help ensure confidence on both sides. In other words, there's obviously a fear that if uh, by Hamas, that if it, they released the 50 Israeli hostages or foreign hostages, depending on the makeup of the group, um, would Israel actually go ahead and release all their hostages? Would the ceasefire hold and, and vice versa? If Hamas releases some and Israel releases some now, then it gives both sides greater confidence and allows for there to be insurity that both sides will keep to their words and their commitments that were made in the Doha document. Yeah, it's I get asking for families, though, that have to wait and see uh, over the next few days. Um, it's been nearly eight weeks, though, since the Hamas attack. What's been the biggest challenge in negotiating this hostage release? Well, first of all, it's not a direct negotiation, as you said. Because it's going through Qatar, it's taking some time. It means Qatar is really going back and forth uh, between Israel, between Hamas, between the U.S., between Egypt. And so that obviously adds quite a bit of time. Uh, but also just on the ground, facts have changed things. So Israel's military actions have changed the timing that uh, Hamas and Israel were engaging for a time. And then Israel stepped up actions, including at Shifa Hospital lately. Conversely, Hamas had taken actions early on and kept pushing off negotiations. It wouldn't give a list of who was being held originally to Israel. So there's been a number of challenges on both sides that have had to be worked through. Do you think if Israel had not responded in the way that it has that we might have gotten here quicker? No, I, I don't. I, I, a lot of the holdup was really on the Hamas side. I, I think obviously on the ground had an impact, but I think Hamas dragged its feet, which has been a long-held uh, strategy over the years by the group. You'll remember that they held a former Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit, for over five and a quarter years. And Israel had to trade over a thousand people, including 280 serving life sentences uh, back in 2011 to, to get him out. So Hamas is very, very comfortable having the hostages. It's used to having the hostages. It views it as the best leverage that the group has. How did Qatar get involved in all this? Qatar has long been wanting to play a role and has been playing a role throughout the region as a mediator. Qatar is such a small state, a population of about 300,000, second highest GDP per capita in the world. It feels that it can use, frankly, its position, uh, not only in the region, but globally to be a mediator. And it has done so now for a number of years on a variety of conflicts. Um, Hamas has been reliant on Qatar to transfer funds to the group for a number of years that was part of an Israeli strategy and with Israeli acquiescence, the goal was to keep things in the Gaza Strip 
at a slightly low simmering level, enough funds for Hamas to stay control and to keep things calm. Obviously, that strategy did not work, but they've had a long relationship with Hamas uh, because of that. Jonathan, quickly, what are the chances this pause can become permanent? I think it's probably unlikely. The the reality is nothing about this pause does anything to ensure Israel's long-term security, and that's what its military goals are being used for. Uh, So in the end, I expect that you'll see, unfortunately, resumption of fighting um, at the end. Jonathan Panikoff is a former U.S. intelligence officer and director of the Scowcroft Middle East Security Initiative at the Atlantic Council's Middle East Program. Jonathan, thanks. Thank you. And for more coverage and for differing views and analysis of the conflict, go to npr.org slash Middle East Updates. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter championed many causes during her lifetime, but she held a special place in her heart for mental health. Many on the front lines of mental health advocacy say her legacy will be that she held on to hope despite numerous setbacks. Reporter Christine Herman explains. Rosalind Carter was the nation's first prominent political figure to sound the alarm about the inadequacies of the mental health system. Half a century ago, people were ashamed to talk about mental illness, but Mrs. Carter did not shy away. She imagined that we would have mental health treatment just the same way that people were going to the doctors for their physical health. Dr. Rebecca Brendel is past president of the American Psychiatric Association. She says the landmark Mental Health Systems Act that Mrs. Carter championed while President Carter was in office was a game changer. It called for major investments in community-based mental health treatment. The measure passed, but would later be stripped of funding after President Reagan took office in the 80s. Brendel says if that hadn't happened... We would be in a very different place than we are really playing catch-up in making mental health services available to every American. Despite the setback, Rosalind Carter persisted. Eve Bird, director of the Carter Center's mental health program, says Mrs. Carter often told stories about how hard it was, even as first lady, to get people to sit down and talk about mental health. I think what sets her apart is that she recognized the stigma and really more so the discriminatory behaviors that um, come from that stigma. It would be another three decades before community mental health treatment would be federally funded again through the Affordable Care Act signed into law by President Obama in 2010. Before the ACA, Rosalind Carter lobbied for another federal bill, the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. It would require insurance companies to cover mental illness on par with other medical issues. Then-Congressman Patrick Kennedy co-sponsored the measure. He says the Parity Act passed in part because it got tacked onto the $700 billion bailout for banks aimed at stabilizing the economy, but also because Mrs. Carter came to Capitol Hill to testify in support of the measure. I don't think we passed it because there was any great outcry to finally end the separate and unequal treatment of those who have a brain illness versus another illness of their body. There was just really not a whole lot of other people coming in with any kind of celebrity at all wanting to associate themselves with this cause. 
Fast forward to 2023, and there are many examples of how Rosalind Carter's labors over so many years have come to bear fruit. Earlier this year, the Biden administration strengthened a rule to make insurance cover mental health care. Dr. Brendel with the American Psychiatric Association says Mrs. Carter's efforts also helped spur federal funding for research on mental illnesses. There's also the new national three-digit mental health crisis line, 988. That parallels uh, emergency medical services and can put any American and every American in touch with a trained crisis counselor when they're experiencing any kind of mental health crisis or emergency. And her mental health work was not limited to the U.S. In the early 2000s, she focused on Liberia. Here's Carter Center's Eve Bird again. We have been in Liberia for 15 years, gone from one psychiatrist to over 350 clinicians, helped them pass their first mental health law. Beyond policy, Dr. Brendel is grateful to Mrs. Carter for her life as an example of compassion and dedication for anyone who hopes to bring about lasting change. We have to stick with it. It doesn't happen overnight. And her legacy will always be that she stuck with it right until the end. For NPR News, I'm Christine Herman. Turkey, mashed potatoes, stuffing, and even sweet pecan pie melting in your chunky cheeks. It was all so delicious yesterday. Today, not so much. All you're getting is mine. You went back for seconds and thirds of everything just hours ago. Today, you can't even look at another bite, even though you feel a little guilty. In the U.S., up to 40% of the food we produce goes uneaten. Anne-Marie Bonneau is the author of the cookbook, The Zero Waste Chef. Her ideas for your leftovers go beyond turkey sandwiches and pie for breakfast. She says you can find a way to use everything on the table right down to the cranberry sauce. I like to make my own fruit bottom yogurt with it. It's delicious. So I'll just take a big spoonful and put it in a small dish and top it with yogurt. Bono says you can even use that unfinished bottle of wine. You can make really delicious vinegar from leftover wine. Let's say you have a cup left over. You can stir in a few tablespoons of apple cider vinegar and let it sit for about a month and you'll have delicious vinegar. Bono says to think of your Thanksgiving leftovers as resources. Save the turkey bones and make broth. When you're prepping, you can save the little bits and pieces of vegetables, and you can either freeze them or you can use them right away to make free vegetable broth. She recommends putting some pastry dough over turkey leftovers and gravy to make a turkey pot pie or even turkey shepherd's pie if you have uneaten mashed potatoes. But what happens on day three or day four when eating leftover turkey feels like a chore? Use the freezer. Freeze that leftover turkey. Take it out a couple of weeks later or a month later and cook something new with it. And don't forget, there's no reason your household has to shoulder this burden alone. I would tell guests, bring a container. Who doesn't like leftover Thanksgiving dinner? And don't be afraid to employ a little guilt. Remember, finishing up all those leftovers is good for the planet. So win-win.
This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, before the Israel-Hamas war, some Arab countries were moving to normalize relations with Israel. We'll look at what may happen with those talks now. It's 819. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR bring you the latest developments on all of these fronts and the context to help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. Keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org and thanks. Mostly sunny today. We'll have a high in the mid-40s. It'll also be windy. Low 20s tonight under mostly clear skies. Sunny tomorrow. Highs will only be in the upper 30s. A few clouds move in on Sunday and it'll warm up a bit. We'll have highs in the upper 40s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. Join some of your favorite WBUR hosts at City Space for our annual reading of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol on Monday, December 19th. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grant Chester's Morgan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. Lots of great Black Friday deals are hiding in plain sight. You just got to know where to look. Turns out some of the best deals are in places where you'd never expect. We're not talking about Target, Walmart, or Amazon, or Best Buy. That's Joni Demmer, co-founder of the website CrazyCouponLady.com. There are so many places that you wouldn't expect that are trying to get a piece of your Black Friday budget and are having some great sales to attract you. Demmer says surprising Black Friday bargains could be found right around the corner at your neighborhood drugstore. CVS is great for gift cards. CVX is also the place that has $5 Conair appliances. We're talking about a curling iron that's regularly 20 bucks will be only $5. And Walgreens is a fun one because they've got $10 back on every $35 spent. 
you're going to be in that 70, 80% off range if you're willing to play the game. But if you're looking for the real deal, what you doing looking at him? He ain't nothing but a cheap thrill. He can't love you like I will. Demmer says you can also find great deals at home improvement stores, and we're not just talking monkey wrenches and power tools. Lowe's actually comes in with some of the most exciting deals. They've got one-quart poinsettias for $1.50. They've got wreaths for $10, and they have seven to eight-foot live Christmas trees for $63. Nobody's going to come close to those prices. How much is that dog in the window? <laughs> the one Pet stores really, really get in on the game. And the interesting thing here is it seems to be a rivalry with Amazon that's pushing down prices. Both pet stores are watching what Amazon's doing. Amazon is watching that. But that competition has really created some opportunities. And so while this is about unexpected places, the thing is, sometimes it's the unexpected place that starts the deal. And then you can get the convenience of Amazon once they match it. I do hope Demmer says another unexpected place for Black Friday bargains is your local auto parts store. We've noticed one of the best-selling items this time of year is wiper blades. So both O'Reilly Auto Parts and AutoZone both have great deals. O'Reilly wins. They've got $20 gift card with any wiper blades that you purchase. Now is the time to do it. Warranty is in the sack. You can always take me back and go window shopping again. Window shopping again. Demmer says the best way to save money on Black Friday is to just stay home. 97% of the deals are available online. So we're seeing some gimmicks trying to get people back in stores. But for me, the way that it's easier for me to stick to a budget is actually staying home. And what could be better on Black Friday than saving money and wear and tear on your feet? I got 10 toy soldiers for Billy Joe. I got a coloring book for Sue. I got a little toy train for Danny Boy and a cowboy suit for Lou. I got a talking baby doll for Cindy. I got a pair of roller skates for Jane. And baby, if we ever have any more kids, Christmas shopping's gonna drive me insane. Among the retailers mentioned in this story, Amazon is a supporter of NPR. The Walton Family Foundation, which was started by the founders of Walmart, is also a sponsor of NPR. It's Friday, time for StoryCorps. This week, a look back at father and son locksmiths. Phil and Philip Mortolaro run Greenwich Locksmiths in Manhattan. Phil has been locking and unlocking things since he was 14 years old. He opened his Greenwich Village shop in 1980. All five of his children spent time there. Philip, his youngest son, decided to follow in his father's footsteps. They came to StoryCorps back in 2014 to talk about locksmithing together. I was one of those kids who would show up when school first started, and they would see me again around Christmas time, and then they would see me in June to tell me that I had to do the grade over again. So dropping out of school was... It was inevitable. And as far as you doing the business, you started younger than me. As soon as I could walk. Even before you were walking. Yeah, I got pictures of you in the shop when you were in the bassinet. I was literally there since day one. I saw you do it. I was like, okay, I can do this. Then I kind of realized, man, you know, everyone 
loves my dad. One half of that is, you know, because he's a great guy. The other half is like, you know, he's the guy who helps you when even other locksmiths can't help. I have a sense of usefulness. And that's the big thing in my noodle is that you always have to feel like I have some worth. I'm not just saying this. You're the most hardworking, tenacious person I know. That comes from coming from immigrant parents. You can never work hard enough. Even when you're working seven days a week, they say you're a little lazy. Think about it, Philip. When am I ever late? Never. When do I ever take vacations? No, never. And when am I going to retire? One day before your funeral. You know. (laughs) You know, if you ever didn't want to do this, you know, I would never be heartbroken. I would understand. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? My father, he hated my business, man. You know, I had a cousin who became an accountant, and my father used to tell me about him all the time. But um, I think it was the, the founder of IBM. He said, I'm no genius, but I'm bright in spots, and I stay around those spots. I like that. You raised all of us, man. Five kids and every single one of them did not ever want for anything, man. That's hard to do for someone who just went up to the eighth grade. Well, you do your best, kid. This is what you do. But honestly, your best. Not not just a BS best. And even if you fail, it doesn't feel that bad. You're always my barometer. You've never let anyone down. That's what sets you apart. That's Philip and Phil Mortolaro in New York City in 2014. Phil still insists he has no plans to retire. Their interview is archived in the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru. The Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com share. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, WBUR's arts and culture fellow Solon Kelleher shares ideas for what to do with all those Thanksgiving leftovers. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Landry and Arkari Rugs and Carpeting with a Black Friday event now through the 27th for all hand-woven rugs. Only online at LandryAndArkari.com. At NPR, we don't just sit in the host chair. We take the shows to the news and find the voices you need to hear. We're reporters at heart. I'm Leila Falden, host of Morning Edition. I've covered everything from a coup in Egypt to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis to the war in Ukraine. And I want to remind you that your old car could help keep that work going. Donate it to this station and it will go towards keeping our reporters in the field. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A four-day pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas began hours ago. During the agreed-to window, Hamas is to release 50 of the more than 200 hostages taken during the militants' deadly assault in southern Israel on October 7th. The first 13, all women and children, are expected to be set free next hour. The deal calls for Israel to release 150 Palestinians from Israeli jails. NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv says the agreement, mediated by Qatar, also calls for more humanitarian aid to flow into Gaza. 
In the first hours of the ceasefire, the Palestinian Red Crescent said dozens of trucks arrived from neighboring Egypt with food, water, and medicine. Hamas says the ceasefire deal allows 200 aid trucks a day to enter Gaza, a large increase over recent weeks. Also, Palestinians began to emerge on the streets of Han Yunus, the largest city in the southern part of Gaza. Israeli ground forces are in northern Gaza and warned the remaining Palestinians in that part of the territory to stay put. A military statement said, quote, The war is not over yet. The ceasefire for humanitarian purposes is temporary. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Now futures are up 38 points this morning. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new exhibit at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston seeks to challenge outdated perceptions of women. WBUR's Jacob Garcia explains. Newton-based Brazilian painter Ginota Justice reimagines iconic portraits of women by white male painters like Titian and Henri Matisse. In her paintings, Justice reframes the power dynamics between the artists and their subjects. She says she feels an obligation to change the view of these women, but also empower others through her art. I see myself in these ancient women who posed for these male artists and, you know, good for them for having painted them because now I have access to them. But, you know, like I feel entitled almost to to treat their imagery as mine. And I feel good about that. The exhibition is on display at the MFA through April. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jacob Garcia. Massachusetts is looking to get 300,000 electric vehicles registered in the next few years. The goal is to limit emissions from transportation. Local automotive students have been learning how to work on EVs to help that growing industry. Matthew Moynihan is an automotive technology instructor at Cape Cod Technical High School in Harwich. He says a state grant allowed the school to buy five EVs for students to learn on, as well as fully insulated tools for safety. So we're trying to create students that know how to safely work around EVs. That's kind of our main goal right now. We're not looking to have students that are full-blown EV technicians coming out of here. That is not really in the capability of what we have. The EPA has proposed rules to have electric vehicles make up two-thirds of all new cars sold in the U.S. by 2032. An island along the coast of Maine is now part of the National Register of Historic Places. That comes after a years-long effort to add Malaga Island to the list. Historians say the island was settled by free black Americans around the Civil War. In 1911, the governor of Maine forced several islanders to be committed to a facility. The rest of the residents were forced off the island the next year. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. The Bruins host the Detroit Red Wings at the Garden today. That game gets underway at 1 p.m. Meanwhile, the Celtics will take on the Magic in Orlando. That game starts at 2.30. Highs in the mid-40s today under mostly sunny skies. It'll also be windy. Tonight, low 20s and mostly clear skies. Tomorrow, sunny with highs only in the upper 30s. Sunday, partly cloudy with highs back in the upper 40s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power. 
now playing exclusively in theaters. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. A negotiated four-day pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas has begun. The temporary ceasefire was brokered by Qatar, Egypt, and the United States, and it includes the release of some of the roughly 240 hostages seized by Hamas in their deadly October 7th attack on Israel. In return, some Palestinian prisoners held by Israel will be freed. The war between Israel and Hamas and the regional backlash over the civilian death toll in Gaza has overshadowed other diplomatic agreements that several Arab states made with Israel three years ago. Here's NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam. The so-called Abraham Accords were spun out of the Trump administration's effort to broker peace in the Middle East. They were meant to normalize relations between Israel and Arab nations, says Natan Sachs, director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. Israel and some important Arab countries, most notably the United Arab Emirates, but with it also Morocco, Bahrain, and for a moment Sudan, reached agreements on normalization. Compared to earlier agreements between Israel and Egypt or Jordan, these accords were relatively easy, says Aaron David Miller of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. The UAE, Bahrain and Morocco were neither neighbors nor at war with Israel and already cooperating with the Jewish state. Miller says the agreement made those relationships public and that all sides of the Abraham Accords have benefited. They flourished. These agreements impressed even the most skeptical that they would not just be formalistic, but they would actually produce cultural exchanges, economic exchanges, and on the issue of security cooperation and intelligence sharing, these three benefited enormously. The Abraham Accords did nothing to help the Palestinians. They were left out. At the time, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu boasted he had achieved the agreement without any concessions to the Palestinians. And Miller says the Arab states that signed off had grown frustrated with the Israel-Palestinian issue. The Arab states had reached a judgment that this conflict could not be resolved and they were not going to tether themselves to Palestinian interests when their own interests could have been advanced even without a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian problem. Bahrain has recalled its ambassador to Israel and closed its airspace to Israeli flights, but hasn't backed out of the accords. Nor has the United Arab Emirates or Morocco, despite the uproar across the Arab world about what's happening in Gaza, says Youssef Munayer, who heads up the Palestine-Israel program at the Arab Center in Washington, D.C. All of these regimes see that and understand their people are not just angry with Israel, but they're also angry with them. They're angry with them because they see them as tolerating this and in many ways furthering it through their normalized ties. Saudi Arabia was inching towards signing the accords with encouragement from the Biden administration. But that's basically on hold, says Munair. And I think that, you know, while the Saudis may have been prepared to move more in that direction before this, the idea that you can kind of ignore Palestine, I think now has been has really been shattered. And more and more people see the necessity of keeping Palestine at the top of the international agenda because we've all witnessed the costs of what happens when it's not and it's ignored. 
Sachs with the Brookings Institution says the Biden administration recognizes any normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia would need a Palestinian component. But what exactly that component would be has yet to be defined. Could, for example, Saudi Arabia play a constructive role in reconstructing Gaza, for example, or allowing uh, some kind of political settlement in Gaza that would be slightly less terrible than the alternatives. Sachs says all this rests in the future, once the latest conflict between Israel and Hamas subsides. Jackie Northam, NPR News. In Nigeria, the sudden death over two months ago of an Afro pop star sparked a countrywide outpouring of grief and many questions. 27-year-old Mobad was a rising talent in the industry, but his death triggered a nationwide conversation about the darker side of the multi-million dollar Afrobeats industry and the treatment of artists by powerful figures. A subsequent police investigation has led to multiple arrests, including one of the country's biggest music stars. Yet months on, there are fears for the integrity of the investigation, as NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports from Lagos. The upbeat lines of Feel Good by Mobad now carries a more somber weight since he died under suspicious circumstances. At protests and vigils attended by thousands in September, his songs became a rallying point for justice. Mobad, originally known as Ilerio Lua Aloba, was a beloved star who'd risen from tough beginnings to stardom. Mobad left Malian Music, his former music label last year, founded by Afrobeat star Naira Mali. He alleged in various songs and interviews that he had suffered abuse and multiple attempts on his life for daring to leave. In this footage posted over a year ago, he said he was being physically attacked by Mali and the label, and that if he died, they should be held responsible. Mali strongly denies the allegation. Police then promised a thorough investigation, but months on, the cause of death is still unknown. The written testimonies of the witnesses are likely of high evidential value. The last major update came in early October at this press conference by police in Lagos. Mobad's body had been exhumed after it was hastily buried a day after he died. An autopsy had been done and five individuals were in police custody, they said. They included a nurse who treated him shortly before he died and Naira Mali. He was arrested in connection to incidents of assault against Mobad. He was then released on bail. It's been two months now and um, we seem not to be seeing any movement. Uh, we're not getting updates. Tunde Olawawa is the manager of Splash FM, one of a number of radio stations which have stopped playing Mali's songs amid outrage at his label. In our discussions with my colleagues, how we see it is that there might be uh, moves or attempt to stall the case. The Lagos police have said that evidence from the autopsy has been sent to experts in the US for examination. But as time passes, many question whether the investigation can be trusted. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos.
This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at predictions for who will spend big this holiday weekend and what items will attract the most dollars. Mostly sunny, windy, and mid-40s today. Temperatures fall to the low 20s tonight and skies stay mostly clear. It'll only be in the upper 30s tomorrow, but it'll be sunny. A few clouds move in on Sunday. Temperatures will warm up back to the upper 40s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Swan Galleries, with an auction of modern and post-war art on November 30th, featuring works from the early 1900s through mid-century modernism with sculpture and paintings. Catalog, bidding, and exhibition information at swanauctiongalleries.com and on the Swan app. And AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. Stores in Massachusetts are not expecting a big bump this year in holiday season shopping sales. That's according to the latest survey from the Retailers Association of Massachusetts. As WBUR's Stevie Chapman reports, it predicts the state will see just a 1% increase in sales compared to last year. This year's shopping forecast is well below recent years, which saw a spike in spending during the pandemic. Association Vice President Bill Rennie says inflation and rising interest rates are eating into shoppers' holiday budgets. He says when people do go out to shop, they should shop local. We want folks to shop like jobs depend on it, because they do. We all want to protect, promote, preserve, and have a vibrant downtown shopping area with shops and restaurants. As consumers, we all need to sort of do our part to support those businesses. Massachusetts expectations are much lower than national figures, which project a 3 to 4 percent increase in spending. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. Massachusetts businesses are already getting in the Christmas spirit. A holiday-themed pop-up bar in Cambridge opens today. Visitors will get to sip on festive drinks at the new bar, named The Miracle at the Kimpton Marlowe Hotel. It'll be open through Christmas Eve. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Families across the country are waking up this morning with refrigerators filled with leftover food from yesterday's Thanksgiving dinner. WBUR's arts and culture reporting fellow Solon Kelleher has long worked in restaurant kitchens and has long repurposed leftovers. He's here to share some of his suggestions. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Rupa. So I just tend to warm up Thanksgiving leftovers and eat them as they were the first time. What's the advantage in maybe repurposing these leftovers to make a new dish? Yeah. Well, there's, there's nothing wrong with just warming it up. you know, And that's going to step beyond what some people are doing, which is just eating it standing in front of the fridge uh, cold. <laughs> but when you're making some leftovers in a creative way, what you're doing is giving yourself an opportunity to play. You get to maybe learn a new recipe. You reduce food waste because you're getting yourself excited about eating your leftovers. And one thing that's often not talked about is food often tastes better the next day. (laughs) That's a good point. All right, let's dig in. What's one of your favorite repurposing recipes? Yeah, it's something that sounds like it's on the back of a 1950s stuffing box. Uh, But for some reason, in 2023, it's gained popularity on social media. It's, as they say, trending. And that is... 
stuffing waffles. Now, you don't need much for this, but it helps if you have a waffle maker. If you don't, you can use a skillet. And it's it's real easy. You just take the stuffing that you had from the day before. It doesn't matter if it has vegetables or sausage. Add a little bit of egg. If it's dry, you can add some stock in there to help get a little bit more ready to mix. And then just cook it on that waffle maker for about three to five minutes. If it has a lightly browned toast, that's perfect. And then you can top it with whatever you like, other leftovers. You can put mashed potatoes, gravy, turkey, cranberry sauce. And if you're feeling a little adventurous, you can even treat it as a regular waffle, put on some butter, maple syrup, have fun with it. That sounds amazing. What if we don't have stuffing? What if the stuffing was so good that there is none left? Do you have some recipes that maybe don't use the stuffing and make use of the other leftovers? Yeah, absolutely. So when you're going to the market, there are some things that you always want to have in your kitchen. And when you know that you're going to have some leftovers, one thing that's good to have is an empty pie crust. And that's because it's versatile. You can use it for a number of leftovers. Let's say, for example, you have some root vegetables that... Maybe they didn't go as fast as you thought they were going to go, so you have some left over. You can take those, put those in the pie crust, add some egg, cream, a little butter, maybe some cheese if you want. Bada bing, bada boom, you have a quiche. (laughs) Uh, And on the other hand, let's say you have some turkey and vegetables too would go well in this. Uh, You can make a quick roux. For those who don't know how to do that, it's R-O-U-X. Find a quick YouTube video. And you can make either a turkey pot pie or if you have some mashed potatoes left over, top it with that or butternut squash for a kind of twist on a turkey shepherd's pie. Okay. But what about if maybe we ate a lot on Thanksgiving and we're feeling a little bit heavy? Any recipes on the lighter side? If you're looking for some lighter recipes to incorporate those leftovers, you can go for a turkey salad, dried cranberries, sliced apples, some walnuts, a little bit of mayo, depending on how heavy you want to go. Put that on a bed of greens or a sandwich. There's a little bit of a light option. Another one, turn the sides that you had into a soup. It takes a takes a side that might be a little hearty and waters it down so it doesn't feel like you're drudging through the rest of the day. Butternut squash side is perfect for turning into a soup. You can just add some either meat or vegetable stock. Also, mashed potatoes. That is a great base for a chowder, whether you want to put some corn and scallions in it, maybe some broccoli. If you want to totally forego the healthy option, what you do is put some bacon, some cheese, and maybe top it with sour cream. <sighs> All right. Even without leftovers, I might want to do that. That sounds really, really good. Solon Kelleher is WBUR's Arts and Culture Reporting Fellow. Thank you so much. Happy eating. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour, the latest on the hostage and prisoner exchange between Israel and Hamas, and a look into Ireland's problems with far right groups and organized crime. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around, let's feast. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS. 
There are a lot of suitcases for airlines to keep track of, and if one goes missing for long enough, everything in it ends up at a huge store in Alabama. Even a fraction of a percent of all lost items is going to accumulate quickly when you consider that millions of people travel every single day. Our reporter digs through your old luggage on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Aid is beginning to enter Gaza, and a hostage and prisoner exchange is expected to happen soon amid the start of a temporary four-day ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. The FDA says 52 children have now been sickened by apple puree pouches contaminated with lead, despite them being recalled. And experts say it remains unclear if and when newly passed abortion protections will go into law in Ohio as lawsuits go through the court system there. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Mostly clear skies today and windy. It'll be in the mid-40s. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 20s and skies stay mostly clear. A cold day tomorrow, only in the upper 30s, but it'll be sunny. Back to the upper 40s on Sunday and mostly sunny. It's 46 degrees in Boston. 16 million more shoppers are shopping this weekend. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine and More, where shoppers can find a great Cabernet, bourbon, or sparkling wine for everyone on their list this holiday season. Total Wine and More. Drink responsibly. Be 21. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshaw, in for David Brancaccio. This holiday weekend, more than 180 million people are expected to go shopping, either in-store or online. That is according to the National Retail Federation, which says that is almost 16 million more shoppers than last year. For retailers, some, some of the big questions are, who is spending and on what? Marketplace's Kimberly Adams reports on how the different generations are spending. Baby boomers control about half the wealth in this economy, so it makes sense that, when it comes to holiday spending... You're going to see boomers using their buying power to really provide experiences, not just for themselves, but for the younger generation. Greg Portell is a lead partner at the consulting firm Carney. So you're going to see a lot of family gifting, a lot of family experiences, which should both expand the holiday shopping season, but also add a little depth to people's holiday spirit. At the same time, older shoppers may feel a bit more sticker shock than others. Lars Perner, a boomer himself who teaches clinical marketing at USC's Marshall School of Business, says older people... Spend a lot more time looking at lower prices throughout their lives, so inflation is likely to be more unnerving and a disincentive to buying. For other groups, accepting higher prices isn't as big a deal as paying them. Candace Corlett is president of WSL Strategic Retail. Some of the biggest spenders on gifts are millennials and Gen Z, and they're the biggest entertainers, and they have college loans to repay that kicked in in October. So the timing is dreadful for the holiday season. 
So we're entering a holiday shopping season where, according to McKinsey & Company, some shoppers will trade down for fewer or less expensive goods and services, while others will go in the opposite direction. Tamara Charm is a partner at McKinsey & Company. Especially among younger, high-income consumers, we see that a lot of them want to splurge as well. It's been a really tough couple of years, and I want something that feels more immediate and something that's going to make me feel good in the moment. Even if it might be tough to pay for later. In Washington, I'm Kimberly Adams for Marketplace. So more people are going to be doing some holiday shopping this weekend, but the next big question is how much are they going to spend? The economy is slowing down a little. The prediction from the National Retail Federation is that sales will increase but not by much. The slowest pace in five years. Inflation's been sapping our spending power, and a lot of people are just doing their holiday shopping earlier. Ted Brossman is a senior analyst with Bankrate. I think holiday sales will be okay this year. Now, the National Retail Federation's projecting a 3 or 4% rise from last year, which more or less matches the inflation rate. I wouldn't be surprised if sales growth comes in a little lower than that, but You know, that said, it's not going to be a disaster. It's not going to be a blockbuster either. One other thing that might be keeping that spending in check, about 25% of shoppers are still paying off holiday debt from last year. That's according to WalletHub. With that, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down almost three-tenths percent. S&P futures are flat. Dow futures are up a tenth of a percent. That's 40 points. NASDAQ futures down a tenth of a percent. And the yield on the 10-year Treasury is 4.480%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. Professional soccer in Saudi Arabia has a lot of cash, and the Saudi Pro League has spent millions of dollars to attract some of the world's best players. Saudi Arabia is also set to be the host of the World Cup in the year 2034. So as the country's role in the world of soccer continues to grow, the BBC's Samir Hashmi took a closer look and filed this report. A rapturous welcome for Neymar at his new club, Al-Hilal. Neymar is a megastar player and uh, he will bring a lot of fans for like Al-Hilal. A couple of months ago, the top four Saudi football clubs, including Al-Hilal, were bought over by the PIF, the government-controlled sovereign wealth fund. This has enabled Saudi clubs to offer eye-watering salaries to attract some of the top names in football, including Cristiano Ronaldo and Karim Benzema. There has been an influx of foreign players. One of them is Portuguese footballer Ruben Neves, who swapped the English Premier League for the Saudi Pro League and joined Al-Hilal. If you see the difference between this league now and a lot of other leagues, there are not differences. I think people at the beginning, when the team started to, to sign players, the people didn't believe in this project, but I think everyone now is excited to see this league. Everyone now is wants to see this league. Sports is one of the main pillars of the country's Vision 2030 economic diversification program, which aims to reduce Saudi Arabia's reliance on oil revenues by building new industries and attracting more foreign capital. In line with that vision, the Saudi Pro League has spent more than $650 million to sign foreign players. Some European leagues have criticized the strategy adopted by the SPL, but Chief Operating Officer Carlo Nohra says that they are focusing on making the project financially viable. We have a commitment to support this 
for however long it takes to deliver on the objectives of the strategy. However, the responsibility that we have against that commitment is to also take that commercialization element of the strategy and start increasing that so that we can be responsible for our own financial growth in the future and not to be wholly dependent on the government. I'm walking on Tehelia Street, which is located in the heart of Riyadh. Right now, I'm outside a shisha bar, which is packed with people. Most of them are middle-aged men who are smoking shisha and they are hooked onto the screens. Riyadh's home team, Al Nasser, the club that Cristiano Ronaldo plays for, is in action right now. Saudi Arabia is a football-crazy nation with 80% of the population either playing, attending or watching the sport on TV. The kingdom's target is to elevate SPL in the world's top 10 in terms of revenues by 2030. It's still early to judge whether these ball investments would pay off in the long run, but the strategy has demonstrated the Gulf nation's ambition of becoming a major international football hub. In Saudi Arabia, I'm the BBC's Samir Hashmi for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We'll have some gusty winds today. It'll be in the mid-40s under mostly sunny skies. Skies stay mostly clear tonight as temperatures fall to the low 20s. Much colder tomorrow, only in the upper 30s. But it'll be sunny. A few clouds move in on Sunday as we warm back up to the upper 40s. It's 46 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is next. I'm Robin Young. Some book clubs run from James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. It's a good thing you took the silverware away from me so I don't have anything to stab my eyeballs with. But Jerry Fialka's read it over 28 years. It's a party. It's a hootenanny. It's choir. It's a clarion call where you connect with other human beings. Why Finnegan's Wake? That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.